I wanted to make a joke because we were all in high school together in the 90s. And I was going to joke uh, about which Yellow Jackets character each of us is. <laughs> but then I realized we're all Misty. <laughs> you know it's true, right? Oh, God. Am I? I don't know. Mm. I do love Misty. We listen to the same music as Natalie, but yeah. Yeah. in our hearts, I think we're Misty. I don't know. I just <laughs> wanted to throw that out there. Hi, I'm Rebecca Cohen. And I'm Maya Garantz. And this is The Sauce, the culture and politics podcast where we drink cocktails and ruin the stuff you love. In this episode, <laughs> we are going to ruin college. We're going to ruin liberal arts education. We are ruining something that made us. We are ruining yeah. something that feels like it was made for that we us. Truly, that we truly love. So this this falls in our problematic faves category, for sure. That's right. For this problematic fave, problematic fave liberal arts education, this was suggested to us by an old friend. Dear, Maybe the dear oldest, friend. dearest, <laughs> the oldest of dear friends. Someone who I've known. <laughs> Get off my lawn. <laughs> Someone I've known since I was... 11 years old. Were you 11 or were you nine? It was, it was something. It was way, it was drama camp way back in the way back. La Jolla Playhouse Summer Village Theater. La Jolla Village. That's right. La Jolla Playhouse Summer Camp. That. Oh you my God. everything does Mackinac. Oh, oh, you did geez. so much for us. You know what? We were still too young to be sexually to harassed by him. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so, that's again. Now, this is just something just to put a pin in for future episodes. Where is the big Des McEnough Me Too story? Why did that shit never happen? Who knows? Anyway, we are here joined by the brilliant artist, writer, uh, shit starter, flamethrower, all around genius, fantastic Meredith Yayanos. We are so excited that she suggested this episode, and we're going to talk about how college is like the best and also like also the worst. The worst. Now, listeners may know Meredith as Theramina on the social medias, and listeners who have been listening to us for a long time know that Maya and I have been friends since high school. Apparently, I just learned that Maya and Meredith have been friends since prepubescence. I did not know that. But we all three have been together, have been friends since high school. So, yeah, speaking of things that made us what we are, can I just say uh, I would not be like I was trying to explain to some friends of mine who haven't known me nearly as long. Mm -hmm. the kinds of friendships that we're talking about here. And and seriously, just shout out to you both. I would not be the feminist that I am. I would not be the person that I am. I would not be the flamethrowing, um, you Shit know. starter, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would not be any of those things without either of you. So I love you both. Thank you so much for still being in my life Mwah. all these decades later. Right back at you. Well, while we're all feeling like this with all of these really warm, lovely feelings. Tell us how you're doing and what you're drinking. 
All right. Uh, I'm doing all right. I had one of those therapy sessions where you just, you, you, you really want to apologize to your therapist. Oh, shit. <laughs> it was one of those. Like, I'm sorry for laying instead, all that on you. Instead, you reframe, you use all of that you've learned to reframe it and be like, thank you. Thank you for your help. Um, so anyway, so yeah, that's how I'm doing. And I am, well, I've been booze sober since 2013 and that's a really, really good thing, but I sure do like weed. So I am enjoying a limoncello <laughs> with a splash of bitters, fizzy water with a generous sprinkling of one to three CBD to THC tincture. Very nice. Fuck yeah. Good stuff. All right. Yeah. What about y'all? Maya? Well, I thought since we were going to do an episode about college, I needed to drink something really college-y. And hard seltzer was not yet a thing when no, we were in college. No, it had not been invented. But Ooh. it should – but it is a thing now. Um, and so we had some Topo Chico hard seltzer. And there were a couple of – they were like all yellow flavored, so I didn't realize that there was a different flavor. <laughs> but there was the a cans fl- were yellow in color. Yes, so they're <laughs> yellow flavored. <laughs> they're yellow flavored. Oh, no. And so I went to, you know, I put them in the fridge earlier today, and then I went to grab one, and I was like, okay, exotic pineapple. Like, I don't think even I can do that. Exotic no. pineapple. But, <laughs> I prefer a, mer- a more domestic pineapple. <laughs> That's right. A more, yeah, domesticated Ordinary. pineapple. Yeah, yeah. But there was also, next to that yellow flavor, was tangy lemon lime. So I'm going to. Nice. Pop it open, baby, and drink the kind of thing that if it had existed when I was 18, I would have been drinking when I was 18. If I was still drinking and we're talking college era, it was all about the Genesee cream ale. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) My husband, Matt, kind of grew up on the Jenny cream ale and Mm. waxes nostalgic about it all the time. And it's garbage. It's disgusting. (laughs) Right? It tastes like urine, like actual urine. But he loves it and has a yeah. great affection for it because it was like his college drink. Yeah, and that's right. You went to bar. Piss of choice. I can that's, relate. Yeah, and it was a little exactly. creamy, so it felt kind of you know special. Yeah. <laughs> special. All right, and I'm doing. Uh, I'm doing all right. It's been a very nice, quiet time. I went to yoga today. I'm feeling good. My children are leaving me alone and I'm, I'm feeling great. great. Um, and I've been watching a lot of tennis and that's, uh, very pleasurable. There's some good hate watching coming up. There's certain players I really fucking hate and I love to watch them, uh, play cause I love to root for them to lose. And I'm really looking forward to that. So Australian open. You hear them grunt. So, oh, the grunts. Mm-hmm. Oh man. Oh, the tennis grunts. Oh my God. Right now, Sabalenka is like, she's like, ah, like, you're just like, wow. With your whole chest, girl. With your, oh my God. There's like deep, deep <laughs> grunting. And you're like, ooh, ooh, hoo, hoo. Cheers. I'm having very, very complicated feelings right now. Anyway, <laughs> I'm enjoying it a great deal. I don't hate Sabalenka. She's not somebody I'm hate watching, by the way, but I'm great. And Rebecca, what are you doing? How are you doing and what are you drinking? Yeah, that looks, whatever you're drinking looks really good. Oh, thank you. It's Ricard. Uh, it's a French 
anisette liqueur, basically. Ah. It tastes like licorice. Mm-hmm. It does the nice louche, right? It, it yeah. comes in as kind of a clear yellowish liquid, but then when you pour it over ice or add water to it, it gets all uh, opaque and kind of turns white. Nice. I, I enjoy the visual effect of that. I'm and, really hurt that well. you're not drinking something themed. So I thought about it. I Not like I didn't think about it. I mean, but, licorice flavored liqueur. That's pretty pretentious and collegiate. Yeah, this is definitely... We, <laughs> I'm kidding. We could not have afforded this in college. No, I mean, <laughs> I, I've always been a pretentious drinker. I'm not going to deny that fact. But um, like, what were we drinking in college? I, I, I don't have any Zima. I don't have any Miller Genuine Draft. Uh, I don't even think they make that Red Dog beer anymore. Oh, my God. Oh, that's you remember that no, one? because or... I had su- because I always had such low tolerance. I would have like a drink, but I was thinking when I was thinking I was making a cocktail, I'd be like a rum and coke, mm-hmm. right? You know a what we used vodka to have? Soda, tequila poppers, which was oh. you'd take a little fucking shot glass and you'd fill it halfway with tequila and halfway with Seven Up, mm-hmm. and then you'd bang it on the table so it would like foam up, and then like, how dumb is that? It's just. Drink it's kind of wholesome, you, actually. It's it is kind of wholesome, right? It's yeah. like so innocent. Yeah. My early bar drinks like amaretto sours. Oh, oh yeah, that no, that's was... like a very that's like a this is my first time in a bar. What do I order? You yeah. order an amaretto sour, and yeah. yeah. Oh man, that's so embarrassing to think about now that I was ordering this amaretto sour, and they're like, "I know exactly who you are, girl." <laughs> so how are? Have... Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just about to ask how you're doing. Oh, I'm doing good. I've been reading Rachel Maddow's book called Prequel, and it's really starting to stick in my mind. It's about the fascist movement in the United States in the 1930s, yeah, like in the lead up to World War II, the pro-Nazi movement mm-hmm. yeah, as it existed. And I mean, like she called it prequel. Like there's obvious parallels yeah. that she's drawing out, but she never explicitly, she's just telling you the history of it in a very engaging way. And there's many parallels where you're like, oh, they're using the same rhetoric and the same arguments. This is all so familiar. But the last chapter I read was really about these Congress people, members of Congress and senators who were deeply involved in a propaganda campaign funded by Germany. They were distributing pro-German, pro-Nazi propaganda across the United States using the Postal Service. Yikes. But um, what was striking to me about it was, like, they really were, these congresspeople and senators were part of an actual conspiracy to propagate misinformation funded by a foreign government. So it made me kind of feel better about all the times I'm like, they're a Russian agent. Like, like actually, they might be. I'm not, I might not be crazy. You're not. Like, this is not unprecedented. This really happened. This is a real thing. It's happening again, for real. Yeah, it is I mean, happening. It's happen- right now. It, it is. And I feel like, uh, in terms of this whole year, but even these next two episodes that we're about to do about higher ed and right wing attacks on higher ed, I feel like. It's good to keep in mind. And yeah. we will probably oh, talk about it more. Yeah. yeah. I think it's going to continue to be relevant. Mm-hmm. All right. Ladies, let's get into it because uh, the right wing is trying to destroy higher ed. So before they can do that, let's get to it first. <laughs> So as we always do when we're doing a problematic fave, 
we don't talk about like, oh, this thing would be great if not for this problematic thing. Our whole job is to say the things that we love contain their opposites. The things that we love have the seeds of what makes them kind of awful and dangerous in them at the same time. So before we get to ruining higher ed and liberal arts education, obviously we have to start by talking about like, why did we love college? Why do we love the idea of college? What is it about college that we loved and loved? Well, even before college, there was this thing of finding some little pocket somewhere of culture, of counterculture uh, that was separate and distinct from elementary school, high school, whatever. So we started out in a theater class together. You know, we were not just a theater class, like an immersive summer long theater program. And then I, I also went to the California State Summer School for the Arts. And I also went to Isamata, the Idlewild School of Music and the Arts in high school. And in each of those situations, I met other weirdos. I met other outliers, other freakazoids. And um, there was this sense of, oh, I benefit hugely from infrastructure, from educational experience that's separate and distinct from the status quo of whatever, high school, whatever. Um, And it was finding my people. It was finding the loved ones that I would be friends with for the rest of my life. There's no doubt about it. Like some of the closest friends I have in the world and collaborators too. Um, People that I've made art with, people that I've done activism with, like I met them in college. Yeah. I mean, and we grew up in North County, San Diego. Yeah. Culturally speaking, yeah, you could say none of us were really of a piece with the mainstream culture of that. No, it was a wasteland. That milieu. Yeah. So yeah, college is a place where you're self-sorting. So you're going to find your people much more easily. Right. And that's that's a really exciting thing. Well, and it's also like you're going to get to be wild and experiment and do that, but within this safe container there it is. Mm-hmm. So this is where I'm going to, and the ways that this is not necessarily true, we'll get to that later. But right now we're talking about the the dream, okay? The allure. <laughs> the allure. The promise. Yeah, yeah. Is that I'm going to be able to do drugs and try booze and lose my virginity in a safe space and become a big <laughs> slut in a safe space. I was I was so innocent when I went. So it was like, I'm going to go and try these things, but it's going to be in this like safe container. And it's not just, it's experimentation, not just of dipping your toe into adult things, things that feel adult, like sex and drugs and rock and roll, but it's intellectual experimentation. I'm going to get to learn all this shit from brilliant people. I'm not going to be in my like sex ed class that's taught by the gym teacher. (laughs) And there's this fantasy that you're going to go to college and everybody's going to be the expert at their Mm -hmm. thing. And you're going to get to like, like savor that. Even when I was in college, I recognized that this exact moment of independence from, you know, my parents, being independent and leading my own life, but having no responsibility. There it is. I was like, I never want this to end. (laughs) And also the 
the way that classes are structured in college was well better geared toward my modes of learning than anything in elementary or middle school or high school, where uh, you could select your classes, take classes on things that interested you, uh, and the expectation that you would show up to lectures, you would do the readings, you'd write your papers or whatever, and it wasn't like you have to do homework or busy work or little fucked up group projects. So there were still some group projects in college. Right. And but it wasn't about crowd control. It was yes, about Yeah, learning. exactly. And when it did come to class discussions, everyone else there, for the most part, but like, you know, there was a sifting process. <laughs> it, yeah. it wasn't just like people who were being dragged in there by their ear and had no interest in learning. Like there, there was a certain minimum level of capability. Well, <laughs> I mean, I know what you mean, but I also know that at least at Bard, and this is like, we'll get into this in a minute. One of the downsides of a liberal arts education is you've got a whole bunch of rich fucks that show up because they right. couldn't get into an Ivy league, but <laughs> Mumsy and Dadsy needed them to go somewhere for four years yeah. And so, yeah, th there was absolutely, for me at least, I know exactly what you're saying, Rebecca. And yes, there there was a weeding, like a natural selection of, you know, people that were like, okay, I'm here. I'm committed to this. Here we go. Right. Yeah. That you, don't, you don't see in, in high school. You don't see in a lot of um, learning situations. Well, and this is the difference between because we're talking about liberal arts yeah. education, right? We're not yeah. talking about yeah. all higher ed. We're talking about a specific right. kind of higher ed where yes. the humanities are honored, mm. where <laughs> there's this, <laughs> where there's this, which, <laughs> where I remember being like, I was this big nerd. And all of a sudden I was in this place where everybody had been their big nerd and but now we were all big nerds together. But and none we, of them looked as good in a neon green tube dress well, as you did. You know, <laughs> just FYI. But the point is that everybody is a nerd who's passionate in their own ways. They're coming from all over the country, all over the world. Mm -hmm. So you're meeting all of these like super interesting people who also give a shit about what they give a shit about, which is like quite intoxicating, even if they don't, even if they have their own stuff, right? And I want to add that as somebody who's taught and teaches undergraduates, I, be I truly believe that every teacher, anybody who's called to be a teacher has an age that they're perfect for. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've met these teachers who like, they have to be early childhood education teachers versus I've met people who are great with middle schoolers where I'm like, you should get all the money, right? For me, end of high school, but mostly undergraduate. That's my age. Your and there's a zone. way. Oh, it is so my target zone. I love teaching undergraduates because it is the best time to brainwash them. It is the best time. <laughs> Because the world is fucked up, but when I teach, I'm teaching to the ideals because the world is going to shut them down with what is what it is requiring of them anyway. Mm. But this is a time to insert the ideals of what it should be at its best, at its most ideal. And they are lit up by it, intoxicated by it. It 
like getting, it's an unbelievable privilege when I get to teach undergraduates because I feel like they're ready for a higher purpose. And I feel like I've got one for them. <laughs> and it's amazing. Yeah. So you're, you're building your army. Yeah. My cult. Yeah. yeah a cult. little bit. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. Yeah, we, we talked about you being a cult leader, and you deny that you want to do it, but I feel like you may have already put in some of the work here. It's, <laughs> no, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. And, and, then, and I think to be a cult leader with college students, and we'll get to this later, is you have to be one of those teachers who wants to go and have drinks with your students because mm. it makes you feel young and alive. Mm -hmm. And like... That's nah, kind of not no. me. No, I'm happy yeah. to teach them. Yeah, because a lot of be those like, want to fuck them too. Exactly. But we're going exactly. to that. We're getting to that. We're getting to that. We're getting to that. We're getting to that. Like the things that I find intoxicating about it is not like I've got them in my cult and so what can I do with them? I'm like, I have them in my cult. Go make things better. I'm going to go hang out with my friends now yeah. who are <laughs> age appropriate. Right. 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 But I do remember just speaking to that idea being in undergraduate school and how much you feel like your world is being opened up, your eyes are oh, being yeah. opened up to this bigger world. Even though we were well-educated going into college, we weren't ignorant. There's just whole schools of thought that we hadn't been exposed to. And oh, yeah. one of the fun things about liberal arts education is that you do get to be exposed to a lot of different things. You know, if you're majoring in engineering, you're just going to do engineering shit. But when you're doing liberal arts, you get to do a little history and a little English and you get exposed to different perspectives on things. And it starts to feel like there's this shroud, this veil that just got lifted. Yeah. It split me wide open. Yeah. yeah. It really did. And one of you guys wrote on the doc, and I want to mention this just because it's so beautifully written, a vast curated in concentrate treasure troves of information and culture. Yeah. Replete with context and footnotes and debate and dialogue. Yes. Hell yes. Yeah. Yes. Your whole job is to show up and have some of the smartest people who've spent the most time and thought in their field just talk to you about interesting the shit they stuff care about. Absolutely. yeah that they care about like mm -hmm. it's fun to hear someone who's like really passionate about an expert in a topic talk about it passionately and expertly like yeah that's fun i you know okay so my alma mater bard college uh the tagline a place to think which we always used to joke about and we all said a place to drink um <laughs> that was like the joke at bard um and the four full un uninterrupted years that I studied there. Um, and I graduated in 1998. I mean, it, it really was easily one of the most life and concentrate inspiring, educational, mind altering, soul expanding, just precious, vital experiences of my life. And I mean, shout out to the neuroplasticity of being between the age of 17 and 25. Your brain is on another level. Yeah, yeah it's like, true. It's just like I go back and I look at the things I was doing creatively um, and verbally, just write the writing. And part of it's just the muscularity of constantly writing papers. That's your job. Mm. But also like I just I had a completely different mind 
And it was the perfect time for me to have that brain be sitting in these little, you know, these little classes of, of 10 to 15 people tops, round table. And it was an actual, you know, discussion. It, it, it was a conversation. It wasn't just a lecture. Yeah. And that was one of the things about Bard that I, I'll never forget. Like, yeah. and how much that made my brain different forever. Um, and also... I witnessed and endured so much creepy, awful, deeply misogynistic, racist, classist, white male, bohemian, silverback, hierarchical bullshit at Bard. We're going to get to that in a second. But yeah. first, but first, I would like to take a second to look at how college is seen. What are the stories that we tell about college? One of the things I find really interesting is that in this freakout, uh, the right wing's attacks on on higher education, freakouts about DEI, even freakouts about uh, freakouts about anything political. Mm-hmm. There's this story that always ends up in the New York Times or Washington Post or whatever about like what are the kids on college campuses doing. As if what these children do and think matters, and it does matter. I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but there's this way that it seems to bear this import where it's like, really, well, what are late 20s professionals thinking? Like, doesn't that matter? They're more likely to vote. Like, there's this way that college, college students, like, I remember I went to Yale where there are all these secret societies. Uh which I was not a member of. And there was this group of kids who on the nights when all the secret societies would get together, decided to start their own society, which they called Porn and Chicken, where nice. every Thursday night- That was at Yale? Yeah. They would like- wait, Comedy Central made a movie about that. Okay, exactly. So Porn and Chicken, they would get a bucket of fried chicken and watch porn. And it was a joke because they were sort of making fun of these societies. And this was just something they would do on Thursday night. But the the weird thing was, why is there a story about that in the New York Times? Like, what does it matter if a group of kids are eating fried chicken and watching porn? At, like, what is this? But there's this thing. It's like, what the kids are doing means something. And it's mm. and it's what kids are doing on liberal arts campuses means something. Yeah. I wonder, I mean, part of that is obviously people can't get away from the idea of education as indoctrination. Yeah. And the idea that whatever's going on on college campuses is important because these people are being shaped, they're being formed, they're being indoctrinated. And we need to care about how that's happening. And you're like, of course we care about elementary education. That's important. Sure. But like college students are important people or going to be important people. They're the future leaders of the world. They're the future professional class. So how they're being indoctrinated matters even more. Mm -hmm. But a lot of that is if you look at pop culture, how many movies take place in college and are about college. And you think about just college in the American cultural imaginary. Does it resemble your experience of college at all? Uh, I'm really sorry to say that the rules of attraction kind of did. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't seen the rules of attraction. Oh, God. What was it about it that was true to you about the college experience? Well, they got into the nitty gritty of the inherent um, elitism 
and okay. classism of it all and the the absolute fuckery of being that age. Oh, wait. And, I remember this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, um, my God. That, it's based yeah. on the Brett Easton Ellis yeah. story. Okay. Yeah. All right. That one so, doesn't count. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> that doesn't count because that's like a but dark yeah, No, I mean, like, obviously, yeah, Revenge comedy. of the Nerds yeah. and, you know. Animal uh, House. Come Animal on. House. Yeah. PCU. Oh, Absolutely. I was thinking about that one when you were talking about it. Um, And I think part of that, especially if you look at Animal House and Revenge of the Nerds and the comedians who are writing that, I think that there's a way that we think about college, which is coming out of 1960s counterculture Mm -hmm. and on campus, anti-Vietnam demonstrations. And it's sort of this hangover from this moment where the only people protesting in that way, or like mass protest. But would you is is Animal House a reaction to sixties college campus protests and counterculture? Like an actual yeah. yes inverse reaction, right? Yes, because it's all about the kind of crazy wild guys who we root for because they like listen to black music as opposed to like the conservative army frat boys right right. but what i'm saying is like if um 1960s protest culture in colleges is about like political awareness anti-war sentiment and animal house and its offspring (laughs) on the various college movies after that are like no college is about getting laid yeah. Mm-hmm. College is about drinking and getting laid and being cool. It's not about caring about things bigger than yourself. No, but even though there are those sort of political, almost like vibes underneath it, because they are making fun, especially in Animal House, it's like that's all there, but they're saying like, this is just about being right on. And I think that we were talking about this with um, White Lotus, the two college girls coming, reading their stuff, but really they're just bullshit. Like, (laughs) I do think that there is a way that um, there is both this worry that what is happening on a college campus is important and presages something, but also this need to say, and also it's bullshit. Yeah. Yeah. And their feelings are bullshit. And when women are complaining about being sexually assaulted they were just drunk and they need to know better and it's bullshit. Like, I think yeah. that there is this real tension uh, in cultural portrayers of college of like, it's important. No, it's not. Ah. Well, I mean, through both lenses that we're talking about, the the 60s counterculture protest scene and the animal house scene, both of these are being filtered through a very white male prism. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and, for sure. Uh, that's, it's so funny to me because when I think of, my college experience, I like it didn't matter if you were an elitist, you know, Finnegan's Wake major <laughs> or like a dude that really loved the Jenny Cremale and the uh, rugby team. Like they, it was all the same. It was the same clicky lionization of really lazy shit. It, it also, I think, should be noted that, you know, Maya, what you just said about like campus sexual assault Many of those movies we've just mentioned portray campus sexual assault. Yeah. As um, funny. As funny. Like rules of attraction in a dark humor way where we're supposed to we're laugh. We're supposed to at least know that it's bad. We know that it's bad and it's funny because <laughs> it's so bad. But um, 
in Animal House, in Revenge of the Nerds, both of those movies at least have a sexual assault in them or a near sexual assault that is treated as funny and just like, oh, it's just what happens. Girls get drunk. Guys are going to assault them. Yeah. I mean, but what about things that are not framing it through? Like, what about dear white people? That's a good one. Or or um, even like a different world. A different world. Yeah. Oh, that show was so freaking yeah. good. I watched right? that. I watched the fuck out of that show. I watched the fuck yeah. out of that show. Me too. Because you're following these characters having the experience that we are talking about on an HBCU talking about all of the like really important things that were happening. Yeah. That was a good show. I think I like that informed my ideas about college a lot. Oh, yeah. But Revenge of the Nerds mostly. Like my <laughs> my impression of college. Oh, real genius. That's a good Oh, movie. real genius. Oh my, oh my god. I used to think that movie was so clever and I thought Val Kilmer was so great and then I watched it again recently and I went, "Wow, I was so brainwashed." No, oh, no, it's still I don't great. Know. Don't it's still say great. <laughs> no, I mean I I do love it, but like all of the stuff I used to find charismatic and charming, I now I'm like, wow, this is so tired. This is so tiring. Yeah, but yeah. it was, but it was, you know, it's tired because everybody's just reperformed it and reperformed it and reperformed right. it since then. And can you hammer a six-inch spike through a board with your penis? The girl's got to have her standards. <laughs> That's such a great fucking line. That's in the immortal words of Socrates, who said, "I, I drank what." <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, but yeah, yeah, it's there is this tension in the cultural portrayals. And one of the things that they make fun of is here are a lot of young people feeling very passionately about things that they really know very shallowly. They don't mm. really know about it. They're going to like talk a lot about it. It's a time for big talk. And I feel like at that age is also a time for big talk and for having conversations with your parents where you're like, I know everything. And like, it's not not true that that is a time, but it doesn't mean that there is no knowledge there. But I feel like that's one of the sort of ways that college and that experience that we're describing as being so beautiful yeah. is undermined or played with in, in pop culture. But isn't it interesting the way that when you talk about college as portrayed in pop culture, mm -hmm. the things that immediately leap to our minds, the, the, our popular culture, the way it figures college and the college experience, it's not really about learning. It's not about really having your mind opened. It's not even about what you were talking about, Maya, with um, thinking you know everything now that you've learned some things. Mm -hmm. It's about getting drunk, getting laid, having fun, playing pranks. Pranks are a big part of Pranks college movies. <laughs> Pranks right? are big. Did, did either of you ever watch Felicity? I saw a few mm. episodes. You know, I, it was surprisingly sophisticated, especially the first couple of seasons. Hmm. And it did get into more uh, depth and, and diversity than that. And yeah, actually, all of the stuff that I'm thinking of that has those elements, those are the things that I return to with more enthusiasm mm -hmm. than... Than stuff like real mm. genius or yeah but yeah i mean the focus is definitely on woo hedonism party party orgy orgy right and i do think tv shows are more inclined to 
explore interesting aspects of it maybe because they can because yeah. it's a TV show. They have show. more room to explore that space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But a, a lot of the movies are comedies and they're almost all oriented around white dudes, straight mm-hmm. white dudes, like being the straightest, whitest dudes they can be, you know? <laughs> right, right. Before um, like all their uptight girlfriends are going right. to like. Or the know. uptight dean. Right. It's, it's, it's often about, there's often like it's the true. authority figure who's like trying to stand in the way of. Double the, secret probation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I do want to say one story. So, um, so John Landis came to Yale and did a screening of Animal House. Oh, wow. Um, oh, when when I you was were an, there? Yeah, when I was an undergrad. And he talked before the screening. And, he, you know, there's that scene where uh, John Belushi is like in the line of the cafeteria oh, of and course. just putting things <laughs> Yeah, up. all the food. Yeah. He <laughs> talked about shooting it and how basically all he did was he sort of talked him through it. He's like, yeah, see that pie? Yeah, put that pie on your plate. Like he completely yeah. just talked him through it. And Belushi was such a so amazing that he could just like listen to it and do it. And he said that the cameraman who was on the rig, in order to not laugh, was biting his own thumb so hard that when he called cut, he fell out of the rig and his hand was like bleeding and he oh was just God. laughing. Just oh, thank you for your service and your sacrifice, absolutely, sir. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there is this fantasy of what college is or the ways that the stories get performed. And underneath that, I think that there's a lot of like weird cultural fears. What? I thought of another college movie that we didn't mention. What? Goodwill Hunting. <gasps> oh, oh my god. Like them oh, yeah. totally. Just, just because it was occurring to me like okay, that's a college movie that's purporting to be not like those other ones, right? Mm-hmm. It is about kind of about intellectual pursuits, um, but more about class. Yes. It's all about oh, yeah. Yeah. class, but it's where class is addressed in the form of, oh, I'm a blue collar working class kid at, that just happens to be a ridiculous genius for no math apparent genius, reason. Yeah. Like, I, not just math genius. He also like can quote from uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Zen, autodidact. You know? He's a, he's a genius. Yeah. Autodidact, uh, and it's about class, but it's really only class as a way for like white boys to yeah, you know, fight. Yeah, it's each about other. class competition between white boys. But what what makes it outstanding from the other movies is that the um, way that Will, I guess that's the name of the character, uh, bests his rivals in this class war is through intellectual accomplishment, is through being smarter in a, in a performative way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so that's like when we try to tackle college as an intellectual pursuit or from some other angle, it's kind of like still winds up being the same thing, but with this sheen or gloss of yeah. intellectual... All right. Well, I'm glad we have all of this stuff because now I think we have to like, like ruin it. I still don't feel like I have said nearly enough about what I loved and how good it was, but 
Well, I feel I like think you articulated it very well. Very well. I, say. Okay. I will say that's the essential truth of our problematic faves thesis here. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's always both and. It's like they are faves because of these things. We love them. Warts and all. As they are. But and <laughs> we have to face the reality of what, what it is that we love so much. Yeah. yeah. So let's face the reality <laughs> of liberal arts yeah. education. So um, can I quote the University of Chicago political philosopher Leo Strauss? Oh, please do. By all means. Mm. Okay. So he wrote a commencement address to the university that was delivered in 1959. What is liberal education? So the classical liberal education that he's talking about has its roots in Veneration of the ancient Greek philosophers. Uh, Quoting Strauss, he says, liberal education is the necessary endeavor to found an aristocracy within democratic society. In the classical definition, a liberal democracy separates the elite or aristocracy from what Strauss also charmingly refers to as, quote, the vulgar classes, unquote. So under this system... Not everybody gets to afford to have a liberal education. Therefore, they are unqualified to participate in this so-called democracy. And under this model, the poor and the uneducated, they have to be ruled over for the good of all, right? So then um, he published an essay called Liberal Education and Responsibility in 1962. And this was coincidentally the year before my college president, the infamous Leon Botstein, enrolled at the University of Chicago. So Strauss says, originally a liberal man was a man who behaved in a manner becoming a free man as distinguished from a slave, direct quote. And then he says, you know, oh, well, rut row, even free men, sometimes we live like slaves because we must work. We have no time for leisure and a true aristocrat doesn't have to work constantly to manage his own wealth. So yeah, the ruler of today's cities, according to Strauss, are these aristocrats, these politicians and uh, philosopher kings that have been privileged enough and brilliant and dazzling enough to have received a liberal arts education. Wow. So the first thing that, wow, the first thing that I thought of, and what's really interesting about him saying that is that he's saying that at the moment when higher ed was really about to undergo a massive change. So Mm -hmm. um, liberal arts education, college, boarding school, high schools, a lot of these schools then, and I would argue still now, are there to make rich people feel like their inherited privilege is a sign of something important. Yes. So Yale was originally not ever considered some academically important school. It was a finishing school for rich boys. (laughs) And it's there to institutionalize um, this belief that their class privilege is connected to really, they learned things. These, they're not just, they didn't just, weren't just given this. Look at them. They have this degree. Mm-hmm. Um, they earned every last bit. That's right. And so what was really interesting about the moment that Strauss is about 
to embark on this moment in the early 60s, at least at Yale, is that Yale had this new president, Kingman Brewster, who was like, we're going to start letting Jews and blacks and women and all these people in to Yale and make it a real school by having actual smart Hell people there. Yes. <laughs> but there is, it's within a structure. Yes, there was a ruling class. And I think Kingman Brewster had this bigger idea of it, but it's still like we're going to let some more people in to this ruling class. <laughs> like, I don't know that the essential center of it is different. And it reminds me of this Thomas Jefferson quote, right? Where it's like, the man is a soldier, so his son can be a farmer, so his son can be an artist. I mean, mm. it's this very like land owny, you know, like yeah. this is the fantasy. Right. But the but that at least is talking about like social mobility over the generations, as opposed to just inherited privilege that's yes. being justified or reified. Yes. Inherited privilege being reified by this creation of an education. Yeah. 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 Okay. So speaking of inherited privilege, can I, like, if you're not comfortable answering this, we can edit it out later, but did either of you have a lot of financial aid going to school? Nope. Nope. No. Same. No. Yeah. And that's huge, right? Like, yeah. my my parents paid my tuition. Yeah. Yep. Same. My mom. Thanks, mom and dad. Thanks, yeah, mom I mean, and dad. thank you. No, and I remember because my parents were were immigrants and they didn't have money. And when I was 12, we went on a road trip and we walked on the Harvard campus. And my parents were like, if Maya wants to go to a school like this, she's going to go and she is going to have no debt. And my mom, like one of her retirement funds through her job allowed you to like use it for your kid's education. Like they, that was like, mm -hmm. it was a real specific yeah. goal of theirs. Badass. I wonder if that's possible nowadays with oh, how much I it costs. I can't imagine. I don't think it is. Well, the reason I bring it up, I, I'm sh and I'm sure this applies at your schools as well, but there was a different bard for, depending on whether or not you were a, a financial aid person or not. Really? Um, well, do you mean yeah. in the sense of like, like I knew people at Cal who were on work study programs. Their financial assistance was dependent on them working in the dining commons or working yes. other campus jobs. Same. Yeah. And I worked in the dining halls with them. So like, yeah. You worked in the dining halls? Mm -hmm. Just out of solidarity? No, because uh, at a certain point, my parents were like, we are paying your tuition and whatever else that needs to be used. So I worked in the dining halls and I worked in the, in the office of my residential college. Did okay. you find that, I don't know, did you feel like there was uh, a stigma attached to that or that that separated you from other kids? It wasn't a stigma and plenty of cool kids did it. Okay. But it was, they were cool, but it was definitely uh, an awareness. I mean, obviously you were cool. <laughs> Even in college <laughs> with nerds, I was still not cool. But I think there was an alertness to what it meant. Yeah. It yeah. didn't mean that people were putting you down, but there was a little bit of a... Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I mean, at Bard, a lot of the folks in, in my position were embarrassed, including me. I'll admit it. I was, I was a little bit embarrassed that I had a free ride, that I didn't have to work at the cafeteria, that I could you know, freely take all of my extra energy and put it into auditing classes or showing up to random film 
screenings or performances or whatever. Like I, I, I was very, very aware. And um, I think a lot of other folks bo on both sides of it were very aware of the class differentiations. Um, it really was a very different experience at Bard if you were on financial aid and they did whatever they could to make sure you were aware of the difference. Also, and I have to say- Intensely classist. That classist yeah. awareness, what I felt the class awareness was, was there was a whole class of wealth yeah. that I don't think I really understood existed until I went to college. Yeah. Uh, like I'd never heard of these private schools. I met this kid who's actually super wonderful, lovely kid, but he had the same last name as one of the streets in New Haven. Yeah. And when yeah. we when we moved into our dorms freshman year, his parents moved in a full beautiful wood bar. He had like an actual wood bar like in his a dorm wood room. Bar in his dorm room that his wasp parent. Do you know what I mean? Like yep. there oh, was yeah. a whole world of. Yeah. And I remember one of those girls getting like a, a box from Tiffany's at graduation and kind of opening it and being like, "Oh, thanks." You oh know, my and God, like, Daddy, thank they, you for my Birkin. No, bag. but it wasn't even that enthusiastic. <laughs> it was very like, "Oh yeah, oh, uh huh." It's from Tiffany, and like, yeah. and and I remember talking to a classmate of mine who had gone to private school in LA. And I said, you know, all of my friends at college were kids like me. They were like middle school kids from public, from good public schools. Right. And he was like, oh, that's so funny. All of my friends were New York and LA private school kids. And I'm like, yep. yeah. Like there people sort of, yeah. even the self-sorting, the class self-sorting that happened mm -hmm in college was happening so that all my friends were people who had gone to whatever their equivalent of like Tory Pines. Yeah. See, I, I didn't experience this because I think the self-sorting happened when you picked Cal versus Stanford. Uh, <laughs> like we, even though there were absolutely class differences among kids at Cal and there were racial tensions oh, yeah. and I can't speak to that very well, but I was aware of it. Just, but despite all of that, we all sort of identified as being the non-elitist folks because the elitist kids went to Stanford and they were all rich and privileged and we were diverse at Cal. We like prided ourselves on that. But there were so many cracks in that. There were so many tensions and issues folded into that diversity. Yeah. I mean, it's an inherently racist system just like any other. Yeah. Highest well, hierarchical and all of it. So there so there you go. So this is so this is what we're getting to. There's the fantasy of this ideal dreamlike world, pure intellectual pursuit. Pure intellectual pursuit. Right. And then you don't even have to peel away one layer of the onion and you see <laughs> Race, class, gender. Oh, absolutely. And how it is a reflection of all of those systems. Of, the platonic ideal. That's right. There we go. <laughs> I, I remember my sophomore year in the dorm, a friend of mine who lived on the same floor of the dorm, she had come from outside of Fresno like armpit California, right? And um, I don't remember what happened to her roommate. Her Maybe she joined a sorority or something. Her roommate moved out halfway through the year and she got a new roommate. And my friend from outside Fresno, I was going to say white girl. She's actually half Egyptian, um, but reads as white. 
And she had pictures all over her dorm room wall of all her high school friends. They're all white people in like cowboy hats and cowboy boots. And her new roommate moves in. She's a black girl from LA. And it was like, here's a movie we didn't mention. That John Singleton movie that I can't remember the name of. Higher Learning. I was going to say Higher Learning, but I thought, isn't that a pot movie? (laughs) (laughs) It should be. That should be the name of a pot movie. But the John Singleton movie, Higher Learning, which was about race tensions on campus, this scene was like a scene out of that. Like this poor black girl walks into this room and sees a wall full of white people in cowboy hats and is like, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, who is this person that I have to room with? And, And like that was my first awareness really of uh it's weird to be a black person in this institution like yeah you don't feel welcomed you don't feel like your people are here that's a real thing and this was cal like in the 90s we were like diversity political correctness but that's that's all lip service the reality of the situation is a lot of students felt uncomfortable in their environment because It was not built for them. Yeah. No, the solidarity was entirely performative and tokenizing in a lot of ways. In a lot of ways. It still is. Yeah. I mean, that was one of the stories that happened just a couple of years ago at Yale. Uh, This black student had the police called on her. Oh, God. For taking a nap in her own common room. What the fuck? Oh, you know, like, yeah, it's, <sighs> it's, yeah. you know, like, hey, yeah. it's, 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 yeah. it's bad. It's bad. It's bad. It's bad. Not surprising. Not right. always shocking. So right. here's my question. If the liberal arts education was originated as basically finishing schools for the wealthy white elite. Yes. What really is their purpose now? Why do people go to college? That's a good question. I mean, it's not the same. Half century ago, only 7% of high school graduates went to college. Now there is an expectation that everyone who is, well, first of all, upper middle class and above, they definitely have to go to college, right? Right. Like try having the child of professional parents say, you know what? I think I'm going to be done after high school. Mm-hmm. Or I think I'm going to go to trade school. Ha- yeah, I was just about to say, or have the the real conversation that like, you know, whose jobs are not going to get taken away by AI? Plumbers. Right. Like, exactly. That, right. And there's been a shift even in vocational programs. Like there was this amazing vocational program in Long Beach where it's the only vocational program that has its own airstrip to teach people to be like airplane mechanics. Right. And they were shutting it down because what we need is more people going to this community college to get English degrees. Like there was at some point a wider understanding of the value of vocational education, even in our high school that had a shop, like an auto shop class. Like, do you remember that? It wasn't a shop class. It was like, there was a whole fucking garage. Yeah. It's an interesting situation because I think we all agree, I would assume you both agree with me, that like, it's good to have an educated population. Yes. Everybody should go to college. I would love everybody to go to college. Every single fucking citizen and non-citizen, every resident of the United States 
should go to college, should right. have a free college education, 100%. Yeah. It would make the country better. I think it would make people happier. But we have to accept the reality yeah. that- The issue is full employment. Yeah. Of employment. <laughs> and yeah. like, there are so many people who go to college because it is a, taken for granted that it is a necessary step toward a certain level of employment. Right. And even as a teacher at public schools in Brooklyn, working in high poverty neighborhoods, the goal that we were expected to work the kids toward was college. It was never 100%. like, hey, you know, you you could go 100%. to um, vocational school, you could become a mechanic, you could become a electrician. It was like, no, we're gonna we're gonna get you to fucking college. Well, because it's like, if this is the game, we're gonna fucking play that game. No, and I right? understand that, but that comes from an economic reality that has been shaped over the last 50, 60 years where um, the possibility of solid employment that you could, you know, live off of and raise your family off of that doesn't uh, involve a, a college education, th that's just increasingly yeah. rare. There's the no economy, manufacturing. Yeah. Yeah. The economy was humming. It was humming for decades. And we were at the tail end of an era where employees were still really hungry to get their hands on anyone who'd graduated. Yeah. And now grads are more than a dime a dozen. Like, Well, yeah. but that's the thing is that I think that the idea of everybody going to college is this idea that somehow we can break economic disparity and break white male elitism if we just get into the institutions where they, that they are. Created. Yeah. That they created. Yeah, that they created. <laughs> that they created and they still run. <laughs> subvert the dominant paradigm from the inside, Right, man. right, right. But also this idea that like we will have more mobility. We will have yeah. class and race mobility. And it's not like that is 0% true, no, obviously. Of course you get it's more, true. Of course it's true up to a point. And yes. that's the part of it that when we talked about the Kavanaugh hearings, that I remember the Kavanaugh's of my time. I remember, I mean, Ron DeSantis was two years behind me, right? Get into it. Like, <laughs> so when I met these guys, it was clear they were there because they were jocks, because they were rich. Ron DeSantis, actually, we've talked about this. He's He came from working class background, so he has a chip on his shoulder. And I totally think that's his weird shit with Martha's Vineyard. Like, who hurt you, babe? Like, some, yeah. like there's a reason yeah. why he's like so fucking <laughs> focused on that. Um, but I never thought those people would matter. I never thought they'd be important. I never thought they'd have positions of power. I thought they'd have money and who gives a shit because they were the most boring. They were the least interesting. There was nothing about them that made them notable. And I'm surrounded by this whole rainbow of geniuses. And I didn't think they'd go anywhere. And then they running shit. are on the Supreme Court. Right. So like there is some, it's almost like we will I give- can you get more mediocre white male than Brett Kavanaugh? I'm you saying cannot, where he you know. his decisions are like humiliating for the entire legal profession because they're just really poorly written and reasoned, like complete mediocrity on the Supreme Court. So he's a wank sock. He is <laughs> a wank That's sock. That's what he is. He, he is a wank yes. sock, crusty. But I'm saying it's almost like this increased access in terms of gender, race, and class to higher ed, to institutions of higher ed, are to have just enough mobility so that they don't burn all the shit down. Like at the end right. of the day, 
the mediocre white dude is still the one on the Supreme Court. But then also, without this path through higher education, Ketanji Brown Jackson would also not be on the Supreme. Like, I feel like the Supreme Court is a really good model of what we're talking about right now, where it's like, we're seeing all of this be played yes. out. Where yeah. out of the nine justices, like eight went to Harvard or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if that's the correct number, but it's close. Something like that. <laughs> so, then, so then it creates this hot feeling of like, we need to have more access to Harvard as opposed to we need to we like- We need to have a diverse, more diverse pool of Supreme Court justices. That's correct. With that's di- correct. more diverse educational backgrounds. Exactly. Exactly. We got to open up this pit. Yeah. But you wind up with, I think, like a dilution of the power of what liberal arts education can be because you have so many people there who don't need to be there. And I do not mean people of color and people from working class backgrounds. I mean the already Mediocre wealthy white people. people. Yeah. yeah. You, you. You have, there it is. You Me. have people who are in college because you're supposed to go to college. You have people who are there because they see it as a path to a certain social status and economic status. Yes. And um, they're the people that fucking ruin the classes for those of us who genuinely want to, like, discuss my Lincolnian interpretation fucking of a, you do. this obscure, silent film. Uh, but they're going to be like, you know, what am I getting graded on? Is this going to be on the final? If we're ruining liberal arts education, mm-hmm. we're saying it's still a finishing school for the rich. Um, this need for everybody to have a degree, which was not the case in the 50s and 60s and even 70s, right. came out of an economic moment that doesn't make sense anymore. All of the problems of race and sex and class are still just embedded in the rule structure, Mm -hmm. in the rule structure of what a place like that is, because at the end of the day, most of the faculty is still going to be white. Yep. And most of the faculty is still going to hold on to their jobs and their power. And there is the way that power is structured. And this is one of the reasons that I'm not a cult leader. One of the things that is uncomfortable about being a professor is the ways that you're continuing to have your new thoughts and ideas and you're aging. It's like that line. And the kids just stay the same age, which is setting up fucked up dynamics. Yeah. And I think the way academia is structured with tenure And the way that some academics are able to make themselves rock stars. This is why why I didn't try to get a PhD. I went to uh, grad school to get my master's thinking that I might continue on for my PhD. But by the time I was done with my master's, I was like, I can't do this. And part of this is I had undiagnosed ADHD. And I recognized that the tasks involved in being a PhD student, I just wouldn't be able to do. Right. But they were also distasteful to me just on like a, a different level. If you want to get your PhD, you have to like cozy up to a professor. 
Yeah, the bootlicking involved. Yeah, you have to find this person who's going to be your mentor and you have to spend years doing research for them. Yep. And all this shit that's like the worst part of this whole endeavor so that you can eventually get to the point where you can have some 20-year-old to do that shit for you. But like, I was like, I I can't do it. I, I can't kiss someone's ass like that. There it is. And... and put in my time like that. Like, I don't mind doing that intellectual work. I don't mind doing the research. Like, I'll do the research for my own dissertation. But the schmooze, man, the schmooze is bleh. And like, when they want to go out for drinks with you so they can feel cool because you're 23 and they're whatever age, probably the age I am now, but old. And then they casually sexually assault you. Right. <laughs> okay. There we go. I was wondering when we were going to get to that. Okay. Sorry. So, I had to. No, it but it's true. No, this is what we were getting to. Yeah. So there's this huge, one would say it's an epidemic of sexual assault <laughs> on college campuses. It's not. Actually, in college campuses that seem to have a lot of problems with sexual assault, those are the better places to be because at least those are the places where people feel like they are reporting right. and uh. where the colleges themselves are reporting that this is an issue. Right. College sexual assault is everywhere. It is all over the place. It is students assaulting other students. It is professors getting into uncomfortable situations. And what's really interesting is that I have a friend who is saying to me, that actually she hates the rules of professors can't have relationships with students only because she hates the idea of a university's shitty reporting structure yeah. getting involved in people's private lives. She finds it completely inappropriate for professors to have sexual relationships with their undergraduate students. But she doesn't but want the to second get the that institution you have the, involved. The, the second the institution gets involved, you're way more, you're so fucked. You're so fucked. Yeah. What is it about these liberal arts institutions that when they are dealing with issues of race, class, and sex, fail? Like, what is it about the way the structures are where they are they do such a terrible job because it's a hierarchical structure it's an inherently okay. natively hierarchical structure it's built that way and then if you have a cult of personality builder exactly that inserts themselves into that and holds on white knuckled for decades also because how do these colleges continue to maintain their high status is by having as many cult of personality faculty as they can have. Yep. Like a lot of, you know, universities that are typed as the best, the professors aren't very good teachers because they don't care about having people who are good teachers. They care about having faculty who are rock stars yes, in their field. Within the field, the, the celebrities. One of the worst poetry workshops I ever had, which actually led to me not writing poetry anymore was with John Ashbery. I mean, there you go. and, and there you and, go. Like, I mean, that's an, I know anecdotal stuff is kind of weak, but there's just so much of it at Bard specifically that filters down from the very top levels of the administration, AKA Leon Botstein right. and his a thousand VPs that he's hired to be his wackies. Right. 
Right. So the way that all these universities are dealing with an increased awareness and conversation about these things is by putting more and more money, money which they pass off to student tuition expenses, in building bureaucracy. They're not hiring more teachers. They're hiring more adjunct faculty who have no protections. And they're doing it to build their infrastructure of VPs who are not doing things in the best interest of the students, but are doing things to cover the institution's ass. ass. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Anytime you have a hierarchical structure, then everyone's interest becomes to protect their status within that structure. And that's Politics of loyalty. Yeah. Uh, Politics of loyalty. uh, I remember being (laughs) in grad school, going out for drinks with a professor at NYU. And this is like a high status person in the film in the world of film studies and it just made me so fucking uncomfortable because we're all like 23 max you know we're like Mm -hmm. between the ages of 22 and 24 like maybe 24 at the oldest and he's having a great time we're drinking and then uh he's like oh where should we go next let's go somewhere where we can hear techno rock and I was like, oh, oh God, like, oh. I have to take you to hear techno rock or I'm oh not going to get God. my PhD. <laughs> like, this is not right. I can't do this. <laughs> well, and and that's, that's the thing. Like, I don't want to go to an undergraduate party, but there are professors who do. Who do. Oh, yeah. And yeah. And, and I think also with some of the s- smaller institutions like Bard, you're distant from the city. You're in this very isolated. You're in the woods. Right. So everybody kind of hangs out and we're cool with each other, right? Like, right. That's so ain't nothing but a number, honey. Oh, uh uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. Like my my niece is in her early 20s. She's, I guess, turning 24 this year, which is disturbing. you're so old. (laughs) But it's like, no offense to 24-year-olds. You're lovely. You're a zygote. You're, but you are a zygote. <laughs> yeah. You are, you are yeah. not a human being Listeners, <laughs> Listeners, we love you, but we generally don't find ourselves sexually attracted to you because you look like fetuses to us. Yes. <laughs> right? Yes, it's true. I just remember when I was in grad school and my husband came on campus with me and he's like, they look so, they like, look so young. Like in a way that I was like, he was like, why do, why are men attracted to these? Because they're they're little baby children. That's They're babies. So sexy. They're soft-skinned, yeah. little, frolicsome right. babies. People between the ages of 18 and 24 are like our society's physical ideal. You have to admit, like, right. that is the peak of human beauty since the Roman Empire, or like since Grecian times. It's like that age group is... Uh, considered the most marriageable right they're they're ready for plucking they are right well there that's one thing we didn't talk about in terms of education the ways that women's education as a finishing school to then marry up right the mrs degree the mrs degree yes (laughs) yeah yeah but it's not surprising that you take some fucking nerd who's an expert in some random field and has devoted his life to this field and who's a rock star for writing a paper 
that 20 people read, right, like right. 20 of his peers read, like, ooh. And then you treat him like a rock star, you give him tenure, and then he's on a committee to decide who else gets tenure. And he's like in control of the department. He's like the most powerful person in the fucking world. And then you put him in a room with a bunch of 18 to 22 year olds. Like, yeah, he's going to fuck him. Yeah, the cronyism is blatant. Cronyism, it's, hierarchical so it's the cronyism, structure, the weird insecurities of these people who are yeah. drawn to this field. Like, I, yes, I'm a big nerd, and I'm going to write my paper that yeah. 20 people read. Oh, and you, 20 year old woman, are going to worship me because yes. I wrote this paper on this obscure topic. Yes, and you're having this major, expansive opportunity. Like, yeah, where you're I'm like, opening I'm your mind so to new things. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, I could be your PhD advisor if you play your yeah. cards right and take me out for that's techno right. rock, you know? <laughs> techno rock! Oh, the techno rock. I could get you a great internship at the Village Voice. I could. Right. Yeah, 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 hey, yeah. There you people. go. Yeah. There it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty I mean, gross. <laughs> with, students, with students who are both having their minds expanded and are also really naive and yeah. still believe like I'm super smart. I go to the school. The amount of peers of mine who were sexually assaulted by faculty at Bard mm. is staggering and nothing has changed. It has, it is still a mess at Bard. And I think the thing that really, really was making me incandescently enraged enough that I started talking to Maya about wanting to talk about liberal arts is uh, Leon Botstein, the president of Bard College. Uh, I was his pet. I was very, everyone was very fond of me at Bard. I was treated very well in a lot of ways. Um, And having said that, I think he should resign immediately because among other things, he was revealed to be in Jeffrey Epstein's little black book back in May of 2023. Isn't it interesting that where did Jeffrey Epstein build his power networks? Academia. All universities, all academia. Laundering. He was laundering his money and his reputation. He was laundering his money for these people who are desperate, yeah. who he's like, $25,000 check, yes, please. Yeah. I didn't realize that. I didn't even know that. Oh, yeah. Like that's there are all of these MIT professors who have who lost their jobs. The Joy of, Ito. Uh, Joe Ito, MIT Media Labs. Like, no, because they're all and right now, Bill, Bill Ackman, the billionaire who's like freaking out because his wife has been revealed to be a what's it called? Her work was stolen or plagiarized. Yeah. Um, Neri Oxman, his wife, got a bunch of money from Epstein to like do her dream project. I mean, professors are so fucking desperate. Noam fucking Chomsky was cronies with Epstein. Oh, I mean, I have we could we could do a whole fucking episode ruining Noam Chomsky, but <laughs> okay, man. Indeed. So back to Leon Botstein and his relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. Okay, keep keep talking. I mean, well before that happened, like I said, like a lot of heinous stuff went down at Bard, young people getting treated horrifically in various ways. I used to carry a hunting knife on me at all time with good reason. Oh my God. There was a serial rapist while I was there that raped a friend of mine. And then a few months later raped uh, a master student and her child. And 
Bard did everything they possibly could to bury it. They didn't want students talking to cops. They silenced my friend. They built this this entire sort of intimidation um, scrim to sort of try to keep Bard separate. And eventually my friend left. Um, the amount of rapes that have happened at Bard, the amount of murders that have happened at Bard are, are shocking and staggering and yet very, very little. It's like I'm, Leon's Teflon because he is this incredible juggernaut with fundraising and that politics of loyalty thing that I was mentioning earlier. Like he has created an incredibly small but potent cult of personality around himself and is unwilling to like he genuinely believes that the the school will fall apart without him and he may be right and so it's it is very painful for me to sit here and say like as much as i loved my experiences at bard like anyone that makes excuses like leon has made in public about why he was crawling up epstein's asshole um, like he, he was meeting with Epstein regularly. It's not like they had one or two meetings. It was no, but because relationships like that get built over do. time and like all of these things are, and this is with all fundraising and all philanthropy, right? which is what this falls under. There is this courtship process that yeah. always happens. And there's a lot of sickness built into those kind of institutional courtships. Especially when... Leon wrote an entire essay about how children, uh, girls are experiencing menses on average two years earlier than they used to. So the age of consent should be lower. <gasps> no. Yeah. No, no, so no. So I have no, to, what, no. like, I'm like, I would love to have been a fly on the wall for those little, you know, conversations that happened at Leon's house with Epstein and his assistant's his young assistants, like Epstein would fly up there in his helicopter with young, like college age women and be escorted and wined and dined and wooed by Leon Botstein. Well, but also didn't Botstein say some stuff about, yeah, call, you know, getting drunk and go like he said that the, uh, the, a woman, a young woman drinking a bottle of vodka and wandering into a party would be the same thing as him wandering into a Nuremberg rally with a yellow badge on. That was, oh, wow. God, that that's was, a lot. That that's wow. And, and, <laughs> that's a lot. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's wow. the tip of the iceberg babies. Like, he but is that's, but that's the thing is that I think when you see all of those patterns of a bunch of fresh faces coming into college and leaving four years later, I think you start to feel like, like that's just what it is, guys. Yeah, that's yeah. just what it is. We're not going to have our institution taken down just because girls got too drunk and ended up in an uncomfortable sexual situation that they didn't know how to get out of, you know. And what's interesting, so I just I went to my reunion, uh, and it was beautiful. It was moving. I was very moved by it. I was like, God, I was so blessed to have this education, and I went. Uh, I had coffee with one of my old professors who was like, you guys were wild and nuts and you couldn't get away with that shit now <laughs> because the students have gotten so woke. Uh, and this is a liberal, this is not like, this is a leftist guy. He's an older white Jewish man. And I said, look, 
I think a lot of students are really pissed off because there were certain promises about what a liberal, because that's something I don't think we talked about. The political promise of the liberal arts education yes. as this place where we're going to perform a more just way of being that we're going to take with us. This is going to be the more racially equitable place. This is going to be the place where we challenge ideas of gender and get to live those challenges. Like this is going to be this ideal bubble. It's like what people fantasize that like Burning Man was going to be. Like it's <laughs> going to be this bubble where we're going to live the ideal world, right? Mm -hmm. Welcome home. Yeah, welcome home, guys. <laughs> but he was saying... The students now are so uptight, they're not letting that happen. I said, no, I think the students are pissed yeah, because they are seeing the way that that promise is not true because there's this intense inability to have the conversation. It is a really reactive time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I would die for these Zoomers. <laughs> these these Tumblr Zoomers who have taught me so much and have made me more woke. Yeah, I mean, I think that anyone under the age of 25 right now is just like, fuck you. If you're a boomer, I don't trust you. Yeah. I just in instinctively inherently do not trust you. But the boomers were like, fuck you. If you're over, you know, whatever, I don't trust you either. Don't trust anyone over 30. That was the there whole... There was that, yeah. I mean, to an extent, that's a universal, but it's healthy. And good. And like in their time, the boomers were right. And then they got over 30. <laughs> and then they were the people not to be trusted. And maybe the same thing is true for us. Looking at it also <laughs> through a queer lens, mm. like having been denied a lot of queer elders, I am definitely staunchly in this mode of I need to be a better ancestor. Mm. I need to step up and be that person that wasn't alive or wasn't just wasn't there when I was their age. And I try not to be too mama bear about it. I definitely try to just be like, okay, you are an adult. I don't want to infantilize you, but I'm telling you right now, the power imbalance of a 50 something year old tenured professor, not only being allowed to fuck an 18 year old student, but celebrated and encouraged by the dynamic at play. Like, Please do not trust a man 20 years older than you in a position of power and authority hmm. to treat you ethically in a sexual dynamic. So that's baked into the system. And I also think what's baked into the system is this increasing, the more the institution is trying to build this giant bureaucratic infrastructure so they can have control it is not seeming to make things better for actual students and their issue. There's this way in which it's like, I don't know if it is making it better for students or not, like, but something is, is, is not working. Because right. students have never actually been the customers in higher ed. It's donors. Yep. And, and it's reputation. Like the way you get students is through reputation 
And part of that is donors and endowment because that's how you get the facilities and hire the great professors and keep them and all of that stuff. Yeah, the dream team professors who you're catering to above the, the co-eds. Yeah, yeah. Like the kids just come through. They come through and then they leave and then there's more kids and there's more kids. The way you keep the kids coming is not by like actually protecting them from sexual assault or, you know, <laughs> actually seeing to their needs as humans, as students, as intellectuals, it's by shoving under the rug anything that is not helpful to your university's reputation or to your university's donor base. Well, and that's also why, as we see with a lot of schools, their job is to not provide those amazing experiences for people who need it. Their job is to get the kids who would probably figure out ways to have those experiences anyway. Mm. You're trying to get a body of students who are not going to cause you trouble. You, do, you know what I mean? Like you're just trying to get them through, get their tuition money. Yeah. And you don't want students who are difficult. Right. right. Like students who are concerned that they have to enter a building every day that's named after a slave owner, for example. Right. 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 You're like, just what can we do to quiet this down? It's not yeah. really about actually, how can we make this a better educational environment for everyone? It's about managing yeah. and spin and maintaining the power that you personally have and that your cronies have. And yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just, yeah. I mean, I, I was so enamored of my time at Bard, but even when all of this hellishness was going on around me, I had nothing but just loving, enthusiastic things to say about it. Um, I really, That's really loved part it of the reality of it. It right? is. And it's yeah, not all bad but, and it's not all good. Yeah. And for me, developing accountability and a sense of devotion to more than just the performance of ideals, like actually the actions, not the words, but the actions. Like well, and you want a sense of purpose that is about being honest about what's going on. And can that ever happen? Not to be all David Simon the wire about it, but is that even ever going to be possible? Not in the current in structure. In any not, institution. No, not in an institution that's structured the way academia is, the way higher ed is. Not, not when they're dependent on the tuition that they're dependent on and the donations are dependent on, not when they have the tenure structures that they have and the administrative structures that they have. It's all built to serve itself and preserve itself. And I feel like the university is a place to reify power. And that is exactly why right now it is under attack mm. by the right wing. Boom. So that is what we're going to be looking at next, where even the university with all of its problematicness, it still remains a problematic fave because there are really amazing ideas that come out of it. Because it is still, even in its limited way, a place for some kind of mobility and change yeah. because it is still a place for intellectual interrogation of 
the issues facing our time. It is where scientific research happens alongside of humanity. Like it is still all of those things, even though in the DNA of those things is all the fucked up stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And that is why when all of the cadre of the self-identified canceled need to perform that they're going to like make a change, what do they do? They found a university, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Because they want to take over that kind of an institution. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's an interesting locus of of cultural contention, the university. Mm-hmm. All right, but I think we ruined it. I think we did a yeah. good yeah. job. Yeah, yeah, we shit did a really all over good it. Job. Yeah. We shit all over it, and we showed that there's no outside of the shittiness. No. Yeah, it's not like. This is the good part of college and liberal arts education, and that's the bad side. No, they're they work together. They're intertwined. That as chocolate ever. and that peanut butter, exactly. <laughs> that <laughs> that like turd and that peanut butter. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> well, uh, Meredith Yayanos, I can't believe it took us this long to get you on, but that I'm was honored. fucking fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And seriously, thank you for being on this bonkers ride with me for, you know, technically millennia. Yeah, I mean, across the millennia. Uh, Meredith, do you have anything to plug? Like, where could our listeners find more from you? (laughs) Yeah. So I make music and I have a Patreon and I get and the Patreon helps me to to afford to 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 be able to have talk therapy because <laughs> musicians don't make a lot of money yeah. so the patreon is the parlor trick and the project my main music project is the parlor trick p-a-r-l-o-u-r you got it old-fashioned trick. english spelling the parlor trick it's uh uneasy listening and haunted chamber music i love your music i love your haunted chamber music also i do want to share that following meredith yayanos on social media is always a fucking fun ride into <laughs> radical honesty and, and witchcraft. take no prisoners <laughs> witchcraft. Yes. Um, so I highly recommend our listeners follow Meredith Hianos because she's gonna fucking say it. I'm on Instagram. I'm I'm I, I'm on Tumblr. I no longer use Twitter because fuck a bunch of Nazis. Oh god. And are you Theramina on all of those platforms? I am either okay, I'm the parlor trick, I'm Mary Yayanos, I'm Theramina. Basically, <laughs> okay, so there's only one as far as I am aware, Meredith Yayanos, anywhere on the planet. So if you Google that shit, you'll find, you know. You'll find, you'll find all it. the places find me, where she is. My social media spore all over yeah. the place. <laughs> all, right, all right, listeners. That was fucking great. I fucking love you guys. Okay, listeners, yes, we want to hear your thoughts about liberal arts education and higher ed in general. What was your experience of it? How did it compare to the pop culture depictions of college? Yes. And what are the problematic aspects that we forgot to mention? Absolutely. Uh, If you are looking for us, you need to find us on all of the socials at Sauce Podcast. Email us with your thoughts, saucepodcast at gmail.com. But best of all, join our Patreon, 
patreon.com slash sauce podcast and come on to the sauce speakeasy our discord channel where we discuss all of these things and many many more things if you want to reach me directly i am at gynostar on all the various platforms if you're looking for me i'm at maya garance anywhere you want to find a maya garance <laughs> there's only one i know of and she's the best one Next week, we're going to be talking more about higher ed. With a very wildly exciting guest. I'm really, really excited. Until then, adios, amoebas. Mm-hmm.